But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he had bound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived the, the life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you, are, you sitting to, are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul per perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. It is with respect to hope that the resurrection of the dead to, that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees said that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and cont contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune afraid, the, the tribune afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the bar bar barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Lord, we are thankful for your word and God for the opportunity to gather with your people. We just, we never want to take for granted the opportunity that we have here to be together with other believers, of lifting up our voices as loud as we want and uh, singing your praises, Lord, without fear that uh, someone's going to break in and that people are going to be arrested and that we're going to have all these uh, difficulties that are uh, faced um, in many parts of the world. Lord, we're, we're grateful that we can gather and we can look at your word and we can, uh, we can talk about these things together. And we pray that uh, even as I stand to try to share, Lord, what your word is saying today, I pray that you would move in our midst. Lord, I pray for hearts to be open, Lord, starting with mine. And I ask that, Lord, you would uh, just allow us to hear your voice today. Lord, would you help me to decrease that you might increase? And Lord, would you produce fruit that remains from the work that's being done here today. We, we, we are, Lord, so grateful for Jesus and so grateful for the life that you give us, so grateful that we can approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence. And we pray, Lord, now that you would move in our midst, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you may want to keep your Bible open there to uh, Acts 22. We'll look, uh, 22 and 23, we'll look at that. Uh, a few times, and then we're also going to look at a few other scriptures today, so we won't, we won't jump around uh, a ton, but we will want to look at a few other places. So one thing we see when Nicole's reading our passage is that Paul makes this incredible declaration, right? It's, it's, a, it's a, a declaration that is 
so bold, he gets punched in the mouth for making it, right? He just, he, he, he says it, and it's so amazing that the only response is, punch him, punch him, just for even just for saying that. And the, I think the amazing thing about it is, not that he, get, that he gets punched for it, but that it's so bold a statement that he makes that he really probably by the law deserves to be punched, but he is actually right. He's telling the truth when he makes this claim. It seems kind of crazy, but Paul was actually exactly right, okay? And so what is the big claim that he makes? And this is really the first point that I want to bring out for you today. The first point that he makes is this. Paul has done everything that he was supposed to do. Paul's done everything that he's supposed to do. That's what he, that's what he says. If we go back through, uh, starting in verse 30, the, the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, the, the tribune un, uh, unties Paul, brings him in, and, and he gets the, the council together, and uh, they all sit down, and Paul comes before them, and he says this, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Right? We saw a, a video, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before, where it talked about the fact that the law included 618 different commands. 618 different commands. And so Paul stands before the leadership, mindful of the 618 different commands, and Paul says, I have lived in good conscience right up until this very day, right? That's what gets him struck. He stands there and he has the audacity to say he's done everything that he has supposed to do. And the priest takes it that way. We know because the priest orders that he be struck, right? It's massive, this claim that Paul makes. Uh, But it's not the first time that he's made it. We saw a few weeks ago in uh, Acts chapter 20, 26 and 27, as Paul's leaving the Ephesian elders, he looks at them and says, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul looks at the Ephesian elders and said, I taught you everything that I was supposed to teach you, and now I'm leaving. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says this, For I am not aware of anything against myself. Can you imagine? Right? Can anyone else make that sort of claim? I'm not aware of anything. I'm not aware of anything that, that is against me at this point. I know I can't. I can't make that kind of claim. Right? I can think of lots of things that people can hold against me at this point. What about in Philippians 3? In Philippians 3, verse 6, Paul's kind of listing out his resume of you know, how awesome he was earlier. And he was a you know, Hebrew of Hebrews and of the tribe of Benjamin. And he says, as to the law of Pharisee, this is Philippians 3, 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law... Blameless. Paul says, you want to talk about the law? Blameless. That's a huge claim that he would make. But I think he's absolutely right because I don't think that Paul is claiming to have kept all 618 of those laws. He's not claiming to be perfect. Instead, he's sharing finally with these leaders the correct way that they should be looking at these matters. That it's not about these law-keeping, Paul is saying, I know that I'm blameless because I am in Christ. Because I'm in Christ and all of my sin has been atoned for, right? The thing that we saw 
earlier. He can stand confidently before those leaders and he can say, I am innocent. I am innocent. God will not find me guilty of any wrongdoing. If you just want to sit around a bit this afternoon, you can read Romans chapter 8 and just you can just sort of soak in the incredible news that Paul is saying, I am not going to be found guilty. So Paul stands there and he says, I've lived my life in good conscience up to this day. I I take it to mean a couple of things. When he was a Jew, I think Paul was working as hard or harder than anyone else among his contemporaries to be the man that God called him to be. I believe Paul was working to follow the law as hard as he could possibly follow. And I think when he came to Christ, he really understood his sin in a newer, deeper, fuller way, and he understood, I'm never going to pay that debt off, except through Christ. And Christ made it possible that Paul could be completely free of that burden of sin that lay on him. So Paul, obviously we see here, didn't always do the right thing, right? He makes this claim and they give him the sock in the mouth and then Paul says, you're just, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And so he's sort of brash, right, when he comes, when he fires right back. And the point of this whitewashed wall is that you would just sort of take something, um, a wall, and then you wouldn't really make any improvements to it, but you would just paint it white. Have you ever noticed when you just paint something white or you just paint something, how much better it looks, even if you make no actual improvements to the underlying surface? We have a, a thing in Kentucky. It's really popular in the south of America. Uh, it's called vinyl siding. Do you know what vinyl siding is? Man, you can take the worst-looking, rotten, wooden house, and you can nail vinyl siding on the outside and step back and say, that house is perfect. But underneath, at its core, that house is rotting away. It looks great on the outside, but it's rotting on the inside. We see Jesus say a similar kind of thing in Matthew 23. He's talking to scribes and Pharisees, and he says, you are like a whitewashed tomb. Right? You look beautiful from the outside, but inside you are full of bones and decay and rot and everything wicked. So this kind of idea, we don't go around talking about whitewashing all that much uh, anymore. But what Paul's saying is this. He gets hit, Paul lashes back, and he is calling that person that ordered him to be struck a hypocrite. He said, what a hypocrite, right? You're going to stand there as the judge and then tell them to hit me even though the law says you're not allowed to hit me? And they say, is that how you're going to talk to the high priest? And Paul, who's been gone from Jerusalem a long time, says, I I didn't realize it was the high priest, right? I read quite a bit about that this week and people say different things like the high priest should have had a certain robe on. Paul should have known. Even if he was gone, he wasn't familiar with the actual person who was in that job. He should have known by his place in the hall or what he was wearing or any of those kinds of things. And I think either Paul just didn't know he'd been gone or that Paul is saying, uh, obviously you're not the high priest because the high priest would never order me to be struck because it's against the law. The high priest wouldn't behave that way. The way that you're behaving proves that you're not the high priest. But either way, Paul says, you shouldn't, have, you shouldn't order me to be struck. God's going to strike you. And they say, is that how you're going to talk to the high priest? And, and Paul just says, I, I'm sorry. right? And he backtracks a bit. Okay, I'm sorry. He, he lashes out and then he says, okay, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. 
Here's what I think is beautiful about that. A couple of things. First, we see in the story, Paul's not perfect, right? Because he can just get angry and lash right out. I don't know if anybody ever has road rage or uh, queue rage, if you're not driving, right? The whole queue. We, we, we have a new restaurant uh, that's open by our house, and it's kind of an economy rice place, and so you just sort of get in there and get your stuff. And, and so our, our family of four, I don't know if you, if we're in a predominantly Chinese area, we look like we go together. And so we're there, and so one, two, three, I'm four, and this lady just comes right in, and I think, what are you doing, right? There's a queue. Everyone's in the queue. Auntie, you don't have to wait in line. What is that all about? Right? And so I get this, I get this immediate, like in my flesh that comes, that comes up. So Paul's not perfect, right? I love to be able to see that about him. And then I think the second thing is this. We can see it. Paul still cares about the law. Because a big part of this is they're saying, Paul teaches people not to obey the law. And so then when he calls the high priest a hypocrite, and they say, are you going to talk to the high priest this way? He says, I shouldn't have done that. We're freedom in Christ. He ought to be able to say, brothers, I'm not bound by that old law anymore. I don't have to respect that guy. I'm free in Christ. But he doesn't do that. Paul is acting like a Jew among these Jews so that he can win these Jews to Christ. The leaders had been accusing Paul of abandoning the faith, but they were the ones who had really turned back from what they were supposed to be doing, right? They were constantly trying to kill him. I was following that through just this week, just like here and here and here and here that they say, if this is what Paul's going to do, we're going to kill him. And Paul's having to kind of move around sometimes to get away from that. He hadn't done anything deserving death or imprisonment, but they were still calling for his death. Actually, in the last chapter, we saw this when Paul does his whole testimony and he gets to the place and he says, so God called me to the Gentiles the crowd says, kill him, right? It says they listen to him up to that point, and then they say, away with this man. He is unfit to live. He's unfit to live because of the kind of ministry that he wants to do. That's the context that he's, he, that he's still uh, bringing himself under. So Paul had done everything that he was supposed to do. Second thing is this. Uh, that I think is beautiful. God had done everything he was supposed to do, right? Paul did all his part. We can see, too, that God did all his part, starting in verse 6. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, right? The leaders immediately, Paul starts to make this argument based on righteousness through Christ. He gets a punch And then he says, I think I'm going to change my tactic, right? I think I'm going to try to argue this a different way. And instead he comes with this. God has promised us a Messiah. The Jews had been waiting for this. And for uh, especially the Pharisees, the idea of Messiah and the idea of resurrection were bound together. And so when Paul is saying this in um, verse 6, brothers... It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. He's leading them to think about the fact that God has promised to send a Messiah to save them. That's what what I'm on trial about, because I think that God's going to send someone to save us. 
So they start to have this unrest, right? The Sadducees, they hate that idea, and the Pharisees believe God was going to redeem his people. And so Paul, I believe, is trying to draw a line, right? Here's where I am, and he's trying to draw that line back through his understanding of the Old Testament as a Pharisee, and from there, right back into the character of God. He's trying to show them this is a natural progression of what we believe, that there would be a resurrection, that God would come and that he would save us. We have a hope in the resurrection of the dead, and that is why I am on trial. That's what he's saying. I'm on trial because I believe that God is coming to save us. It's really important for us because it's it's a beautiful picture, right? It's glorious that Paul is trying to paint for his accusers. He, He doesn't attack. He doesn't fight back. Instead, he starts to tell them, listen, we've been waiting centuries. We've been waiting centuries for this to happen, and the day has finally come. God wants to free his people from bondage the same way he did in Egypt, the same way he did in Babylon. He wants to do it again right now. This had been sort of the, the, the picture of the nation of Israel all this time. For centuries, they, they are a set-apart people, and then they get themselves into bondage physically And then God redeems them, right? They cry out and they pray and they ask for help and God redeems them. And out they come from Egypt and out they come from Babylon. And just different times, this kind of thing has happened. And so Paul is saying there's coming now a deliverer in the same way. God's been picturing all this time. We are now caught in this bondage in our sin. But God has sent someone so that we could be free from the bondage and we could be with him the way that he had intended so that we could shine out this message to his people around the world. Let me show you. If you want to turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans seven fifteen. Right? This, this has been happening in our lives too. We're, we would love to think that man, we just read the Bible and we completely see the patterns and understand what happens and so therefore we don't fall prey to the same things over and over, but we, we do. Romans seven fifteen. Paul writes this, For I, and he's talking about being under the law at this point. He's talking about before he was in Christ. Seven fifteen. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Then verse 17 says this, So now it is no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And here's what I really want you to see. The last sentence there, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So Paul is saying, I have this desire, but I don't have the ability to do this thing. And that's where we live when we're apart from Christ. Maybe, like on our best days, we have a desire to do what is right. And so we take our leftover food or our leftover food. funds or leftover clothing, and we give those to people that are poor or homeless or out on the street. We take our leftover time and we donate that to some charity. We we have on our best days this desire to do better, but we don't really have the ability to really carry that out. In our natural state is what he's saying in Romans 7, I believe. We are slaves to sin. 
We are slaves to sin, and we carry that out. But when we come to Christ, we are born again, and we are freed from that. So back one chapter. Now Romans 6. Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified in Him so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, right? We were crucified so that we would be made free. Then verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul is looking at the people there, and he's looking at us, I I think, too, and saying, if you're in Christ, you have been freed from the power and from the impact of sin on your life. There's still consequences when we sin, right? I still bear plenty of scars because of the sin that I've, that I've uh, encountered from other people or sin that I've willingly just uh, chosen, just dove head first into. But we're freed from the impact of sin because ultimately the impact of sin in my life would be separating me from Christ and sending me to hell forever. So I don't deal with that impact. I deal with the consequences, but I don't deal with the impact because Christ has freed me from that. God has promised hope because Jesus died on the cross and because God raised him from the dead, we can be saved. We can be saved. And so I would say, first, listen, be changed by that news, right? We hear that, we hear that, we hear that. Be changed by the fact that Christ died for you and that God raised him from the dead. And then second, after you've been changed by it, then I would say be an ambassador for that news so that other people around you could be saved as well. Last thing on that kind of idea, if you're a, a Christian, right? If you're a Christian, but you've never been changed, please talk to someone about that. I'm not talking about church membership or being from a Christian family. Uh, I, I, I think I've told this story a few times, but I remember I went to India in 1996, and I was riding with the guy, the driver's there, and I said, tell me about when you became a Christian. And he said, oh, brother, I was born a Christian. And I said, what does that mean? And then we talked and talked and talked, and he said, well, to be honest, I'm a Christian in name only. And I was able to say, would you like to know that Christ stands ready to forget that you could actually be born again, that you could be a real follower of Christ? And he said, I would. I'd like to know that. So many of us are in a situation where we're, where we're Christian, right, with, with quotation marks around that. But please don't settle for being a Christian with quotation marks around that. Don't, don't ever settle for being a Christian in name only. My parents are Christians or I went to a, a Catholic school or I came out of this church. Please don't settle for that. So if you're in this place and you're saying, but I feel a little bit embarrassed, right? I've been a Christian for 30 years. How is it that all of a sudden I'm going to become a real Christian? Listen, it is God's grace working in your life that would make you evident of that disconnect. And so it's not something to be embarrassed about. It's something to rejoice over. This is, this is who I thought I was. God made it clear to me I was something different. And so now I'm going to follow this thing that God's telling me and I'm going to be changed. So please, if that's, if that's how you would feel, please don't stay there. Talk to someone about that before you leave, before you leave today. Okay, back to Acts 23 in our, our courtroom, right? I, I've always read this with the idea that 
Paul is trying to cause mayhem, right? He's looking and saying, half these guys are Sadducees, half these guys are Pharisees, and what I want to do is stir them up and uh, sort of get everyone confused so we can just get this case thrown out and we can move on. But I really don't think that was the point as I just prayed and studied through this this week. I think Paul is making this declaration, verse 6, where he says, uh, it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. I think he's saying that because he is trying to win people to Jesus. He's not trying to divide people. He's trying to bring people. He's trying to bring people to Christ and saying, you're separated now. But listen, brothers, this is good news. He hopes that their hope in that resurrection will allow them to be cut to the heart so that they could come to Christ. And he did, in a sense, right, in a sense, win a few people. Because down in verse 8 we see this. Uh, in verse uh, 9, there starts to be this clamor, and people get uh, all worked up. And then some of the Pharisees start to say, hey, what if, uh, what if an angel did speak to him on the Damascus road? What if it was a spirit that came to him on the Damascus road? Who are we to say that he didn't encounter someone on the Damascus road? Maybe he, maybe he did, right? Not all the Pharisees, but a few. And so it just gets, it just gets really disconnected. And for the second time in a couple of days, the tribune has to come and physically carry Paul out because there's just so much turmoil. There's just so much bubbling and brewing over that Paul has to be physically rescued. Then the last thing we see is this. The Lord Jesus appears to Paul and he encourages him. That's in verse 11. It says, The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And so Paul gets this assurance that he is not finished yet. Jesus tells Paul in the jail cell, you are right where you're supposed to be. Hey, hey Paul, this project, we're right on track. It's got to be painful. That's got to be difficult. I'm trying just to imagine the emotional turmoil. Because if you remember back a few weeks ago, Paul had come into Jerusalem, finished his third journey, come into Jerusalem, He's telling, they're all rejoiced. They're so excited about all the things that God's done. And the leaders say, hey, do this for us because the Jews are going to be really upset that you've come. So go to the temple and pay these guys uh, fees for the cleansing they're going to do and you be part of their uh, keeping of their vow. That way everyone will know that you're part, that you're still observing the law, right? And I think that Paul submitted himself to church leadership, and I think that he went, and then the whole, that whole thing blew up, and that's why Paul got arrested. So I think Paul, over the last couple of days, has gotten himself almost killed twice. Twice. And he's laying there in jail, potentially second-guessing, right? Because if we go even farther back in Acts, if you remember, uh, I think it was Agabus, who took his belt and tied, it, tied, tied himself up and said the owner of this belt is going to be bound up in Jerusalem. And Paul said, I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm ready to go to Jerusalem. If I get bound up, I, if I die, that's going to be fine with me. Stop breaking my heart with all of this crying, right? So Paul had been warned. He sort of knew what was going to happen. But I still think in that moment, it's easy to lay in your jail cell and, and believe, maybe I, shouldn't have, maybe I shouldn't have come to Jerusalem, right? Or maybe I should have said no, and the church leaders wanted me to come and present myself in the temple and go through kind of this worthless sort of system that I don't believe in anymore. Maybe I should have just said no. Maybe I shouldn't have submitted. Maybe I shouldn't have brought that offering, and Paul would be there in that place, laying there, maybe second-guessing his decision to do these things. When Jesus comes, he appears, and then he encourages Paul with this news. You had testified in Jerusalem, 
you're going to be testifying in Rome too. And that meeting, that meeting propels Paul from here to the end of the book, I believe. Right? Paul's going to stand before kings and he's going to have crowds come against him and he's going to have this incredibly dangerous sea voyage. He's going to get shipwrecked. He's going to be snake bit. Paul's going to have all these things, but he just, Paul's not concerned about it at all because he knows he has got a clear word from Jesus. You testified in Jerusalem, you're going to be testifying in Rome too. And this meeting, I think, really pushes Paul to the very end of Acts. He's just not, he's just not um, concerned, I don't believe, that he's going to finish his course well. So what do these things mean to us, right? That Paul did everything that he was supposed to do. God did everything he was supposed to do. That Jesus comes and encourages just a couple of minutes on, on this. What, what are we supposed to do about this? What does it mean for our lives? I would say first, this question. Are you doing or have you done the thing that you're supposed to do? Have you done what you are supposed to do? Paul says, I've done it all. So have you done it all? Have you repented of your sin? Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's right. It's not about being a, a, just a church member or joining this church versus that church. But I'm saying, have you been changed? And so if you've never been to this place in your life where you say, something happened in me and I was not the same after that. Whether you can lay your finger on a definite moment or not, have you been changed? Then the second question is this. Are you struggling? Are you struggling at this point to see God doing his part in your life? I'll just be honest with you. This, the past few months have been really challenging for me in this regard. Really challenging. It's been a struggle for me. So I want to be able to see God's hand at work in me and God's hand at work through me. And I feel like, honestly, I just feel like some days he's just not doing his part. And so are you struggling to see that God's doing his part in your life? And how is it that we go on when we feel like maybe God isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing? I believe the thing that will minister to you and the thing that will minister to me, does minister to me, is the basics, right? That's a time for us to come back to the very core of what we believe and who we are and start asking ourselves questions like this. What do I believe about God's character and his nature? Do I believe God's faithful? Do I believe God starts out with people and then abandons them halfway through? No, I don't believe that's, I don't believe that's true at all. Is God trustworthy? Is he honest with us? Does he love me? Does he love you? You ask yourself these basic kinds of questions, and you say, of course he loves me. He's been so faithful to me in the past, and this has happened, this has happened, this has happened. And you remind yourself, right? You start to speak faith, right? Because I really have been at this point where other people trying to speak faith into me that I just think, oh, I'm just so sick of hearing. I'm so sick of hearing these Christian cliches. Please just stop parroting them back to me. Right? I'll call my pastor and we've talked and he'll say, yeah, it's really, it's really tough. It's really tough, isn't it? It's really tough. But God's doing the work in you, isn't it? Isn't he? And this is what I do. I just hold the phone out and think, are you kidding me? Right? Are you kidding me? You're just sitting in Kentucky and say that? Give me a break. Right? Now, is it true? Absolutely, it's true. And it's the right thing for him to say. It's the right thing for him to do. It shows something about my heart in that moment when I think, I don't want to hear it. And so I have to start, I have to start, preaching that to myself, right? 
Is God being faithful? Is He being consistent? Of course He is. And maybe it'll help if you just reflect on the songs that we sing, right? I was jogging a bit this week and just kind of this loop in my head about, oh, you're a good, good father, you're a good, good father, and it's who you are, it's who I am, all these kind of things. Just to remind myself, to remind myself that I'm loved by Him. I'm loved by Him. I'm loved by Him. That's not something that's going to stop. And He loves us, not because of what we do for Him, but because of who we are. Because that's His nature. He, he loves us. So we can see from the Bible, we know that God loves and provides for His children. We know that He is a better parent than us, right? Jesus, when He tells the story, He says, you, the, you being evil parents, right? And so I look and think, okay, I do, I do my best, and at my best, I'm an evil parent. God's so much better than me as a parent. So when we feel like God's not doing His part, I would say this, feel free to talk to Him about that. He knows that you feel that way, and so you should be comfortable saying, I just don't feel like you're, that you're with me the way that you're supposed to be with me. And I think you can, I think you can be really honest as you pray, and I, I think the Lord will meet you in that, right? Pray and just ask Him to restore the joy of your salvation. Very last thing is this, right? We can, we can, be, we can just be sure that Jesus keeps His Promises, right? That's one of the great, I think, applications that we see right there. Jesus keeps his promises. In the Great Commission, he's telling his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. And so when he stands beside Paul, he's saying, Paul, I'm right here. I'm never going to leave you, and I'm never going to forsake you. So Jesus didn't make these massive promises to Paul. He made promises to Paul about going to Rome. I don't know if you notice, he doesn't tell Paul he's leaving Rome, but he does tell Paul he's going to Rome. And so he tells Paul, you're going to Rome, right? And even in the midst of all this difficulty that still is to come, Jesus is telling him, I will be with you. And we can have that same sort of blessing. I don't know about you, but I've never, I've never had Jesus just appear to me uh, in the day or the night. And just say, hey, here's the, I just want to let you know, here's what's coming up. It's just not happened for me. But we can't have that same blessing because as we open our Bibles and as we open our hearts and as we say, Jesus, I just really need to hear from you today. And we have a, a sure word from the Father here that we can open it and that we can say, I need to hear today from you. And this is, I think, the primary way that he will speak to you. We go waiting and waiting and waiting for him to appear in the night, we'll probably wait our whole lives. But he'll speak to you whenever you'll take a moment and you'll quiet your heart and you'll say, Lord, I, I'm just desperate. I've got to hear something today. And I think he'll speak to you. Jesus is going to keep his promises. He is going to be with you always to the very end. You can count on it. Father, we, we are so grateful that, Lord, it is your grace from, uh, from the top to the bottom, Lord, that, that not only do you do everything that you said you would do, you sent Jesus and you atone for our sin and you provide for us and you do all these, these amazing things. Lord, but, but also, on top of that, you also give us the grace to hear and the grace to respond. 
Lord, while we were yet sinners, that, that, that even though we had gone astray, you were still willing to speak to us, and then you made us able to hear and respond so that we could, we could be freed from all of this. And Lord, I pray that you would just allow us to live in that, that place day by day where we open your word, where we hear your voice. Lord, I pray specifically that you would help me not be so concerned about the output, but that, Lord, my focus would be on our relationship because I believe that you called us first to yourself and then that you sent them out. And so I pray that you would first get us right in our relationship with you. And then, Lord, day by day as you're doing that, I pray that day by day you would also be sending us out, that we might make a difference, that we would be your ambassadors in our families, uh, in our neighborhoods, uh, in our workplaces, wherever it is that you have us. Lord, help us to make a difference. We pray, Jesus, that your name would be glorified. And we ask that, um, Lord, that the people in our community would have the opportunity to hear the gospel, to really understand it, respond to it, we pray. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.